WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Thank you for joining us tonight on Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Now, last week, members of our station represented WDBM Impact at the annual CMJ Music Marathon. We were named one of the top four college radio stations in the nation, and we are humbled to say the least. But with this humility, let me tell you what we have on the show tonight. Um, first, we have a very special guest who I'm going to kind of let some suspense build in the next couple of minutes, and I'll introduce him as uh, we begin our conversation. Um, but later on the show, I will also speak with the Vice Admiral Lee Gunn about renewable energy in Michigan. Uh, We will also talk to a musician about his music, and to end the show, we highlight Safe Halloween. But now, let me introduce you to a very special guest. He told me to call him Jackson, but would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Twisted Jackson Kaguri, Mm -hmm. but everyone calls me Jackson, so (laughs) Abby's right, Jackson. (laughs) And uh, the Nyaka AIDS Orphans Project began in 2001 and works on behalf of the HIV AIDS orphans in rural Uganda to end poverty, hunger, and deprivation. Jackson is the founder of this uh, project and aspires to build community and family structures in Uganda. Now, he made a stop in East Lansing, is actually working here now, which um, I think Michigan should be proud about. Um, But to really understand the Orphans Project, I think it's only right that we go back to 1996. Now, this time was a very difficult time in your life. You had an education, you were ready to figure out your place in the world, but your life took a very unexpected turn. Uh, Your brother passed away of HIV AIDS, leaving you to care for his three children. And then your sister passed away, and she left behind a son. And from this, you experienced the agony of orphans in your village, in Uganda. But how would you describe this time in your life? It was time, a very difficult time, Mm -hmm. uh, to say the least. But also it was the height of my life, so to say. I grew up in a village. I had finished university in Uganda. I was in graduate school at Columbia University in New York, the best city ever. (laughs) And here I was hit by the news. You will have the best on your hands and you're looking forward to the wonderful life you can have. And you have a devastation at home, losing your only one brother. Mm -hmm. So it was so difficult to handle. What was your immediate thought when you got that phone call or however you did receive that news? I want to go home. (laughs) I wanted to go home so bad. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I went home and my brother died in my hands uh, two weeks later. But I did not want to live with the thought that I didn't see him dying. And I don't think I would have ever forgiven myself by him dying without me there. Mm And you were left to father nieces and nephews. And what was that thought? You just finished his education. At that point, you're feeling on top of the world. You can do anything. And all of a sudden, you have children. Yes, ma'am. I wanted to buy a red car, get <laughs> married. I had in mind who I was going to marry. All this good life any young person can envision. But going back and looking in the eyes of my brother and his words to me, take care of my children, Everything dissipated right there. Everything became second. The priority became the children, his children. 
and I've done a wonderful job with them. <laughs> How are they doing now? They are wonderful. They are adults. Wow. What are they up to? One is married with a son named Frank. The other one is a nurse working in the Middle East. Uh, the third one is at home. She has a baby and she's a business woman. Wow. So, so they're all accomplished. <laughs> I'm a grandfather. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, this time in your life also kind of created the next, you know, X amount of years in your life with the Orphans Project. Can you talk a little bit about that and how perhaps this past of yours inspired it? So here I was looking at my brother dying. In this in the circumstances in Uganda, you men take care of the children. You have mostly men working and women staying home. And so the death of my brother meant that my nieces and nephews here were not going to go to school unless I paid for them. But one thing also he had made me promise, and which I knew I was going to be responsible for, was to take them from the capital city to my parents' house, their grandparents, every Christmas. And so the first Christmas I took them in 96, people came, of course, to say sympathies. They knew our brother had died. We had buried him in the village. But they also came with their children. Jackson, you went to America, you went to school, you understand education. Can you help us send our children to school? And that help Abby meant buying a pencil, buying a pen, buying a book. And so with his death also came this extended love beyond his, his, his uh, biological children to other children who were in need in the village. Mm -hmm. Did you feel this incredible burden to help, or did you feel this immense willingness? How would you describe those feelings? I would use your words, immense willingness. When you grow up the way I grew up, you are not only taken care of by your parents, everyone chips in. You really, truly belong to the, to the whole village. That means if you are spanked, you will be spanked by the neighbor, you will be fed by the neighbor, you will be treated by the neighbor. They love you and care for you. And so doing this was my way of giving back. And you had $5,000 in your bank account when you finished education. And again, you used that um, to build the first Nyaka school. Yes, yeah, so here I was now. I'm taking care of my nieces and nephews. Everything's good. Each Christmas I go home, the number of children that were coming with their grandmothers seeking help increased and increased. By 2001, I could not handle the lines look in the lines and cry or just sit there helpless. You can't help all of them. That's when I said, you know, if we build a small school, all these children can be gathered in this one area, have a teacher, teach them, and they go home. And I thought that would be a solution and I'll be done. <laughs> and then what happened? It wasn't just a simple And then solution. the lines continued. <laughs> the lines and then continued. P1 entered. The small school was built. That's why my book is called A School for My Village. Mm -hmm. Two classrooms, no shutters, no windows, guarantee pencils and pens, guarantee no child would be sent home. But we soon found out we can't take care of everybody. So we took the mantra, one child at a time, one village at a time. So we built a small school called Inyaka, which has grown now into an enormous organization that's best here in East Lansing. Wow. And how important was that mission of one child, one pencil, one school at a time to the success of this organization and um, project? The numbers in Uganda are overwhelming. Mm -hmm. There are more than 2.2 
million children who are orphaned because of HIV AIDS. Any human being looking at that number, it overwhelms you. So unless you really tell yourself, only one I can help, and once I help that one, I need to help them completely so they can break that cycle of poverty and privation. Yes, there are so many, but whoever you help, their life is saved and is one less. Just like a starfish talk. Uh, we looked at it and helped still now. We look at the 500, no, 651 and 43,000 children we work with, with, who live with grandmothers. It is still a drop in the ocean. But those 43,000 will sleep better, will smile, will be cared for and loved because of what we have done. Wow, that's a very good way to put it, I think. <laughs> and now what do you feel that this school and this sense of community has done to that city and to your village? So one other thing that really students are listening, faculty are listening, one thing many people who are involved in international development work will tell you, you cannot jump in a village and bring your own solutions. Mm -hmm. People have lived millions of years. They know how to live. They know how to survive sit down with them and ask them, how can I be of help? And that's what we did. Yes, I grew up in this village, but half of my life has been in America, half of the, my life has been there. So we asked elders and local leaders what we can do, and they came up with solutions. Our human rights best holistic approach of doing our work came from the community. It belongs to them, they have ownership, and they take care of it. And how did you take your experiences in America and in other countries and locations and bring it to really enhance the experience in your village? Did, oh, go ahead. Yeah, you look at uh, the education I've had, international human rights law from Columbia University, management and fundraising from Indiana University, the years I spent working at Michigan State University. Go green! <laughs> go white! <laughs> uh, in, the, in the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources, everything has contributed something to our community. Mm -hmm. Agriculture, we feed our children two meals a day, grown on our own farm, using techniques we learned from extension and how people do here. But I also brought in another sense of accountability and transparency, running an organization using modern technology. I live in East Lansing. I manage a $1.2 million organization in Uganda and has worked effectively because of technology, because of management skills, and then you have colleagues. Here you have the support system of Sparrow Foundation, MSU Development, so you rely on other colleagues mm -hmm. to enhance your experience and uh, professional development. How often do you go back to Uganda? Four times a year. I spend a lot of time on the planes. <laughs> First class? <laughs> no, ma'am. Well, if you donate some, I would love to fly first class. No, I go economy. Mm -hmm. And though I'm a frequent flyer, Delta never bumps me into first class on international. Local, yes, domestic, they will bump you into first class, but not international. Maybe True. if they are listening, they will do something. <laughs> we'll send it to them at least. Thank you. <laughs> now, what are your overall goals for the future of the Orphans Project and for the school? So we are working with this community, devastated. Uh, we have educated 651 students. Now we are at a point where we are running a capital campaign. We are building a high school combined academic and vocational. 
and we are already halfway doing this. It's a $1.7 million establishment. It's going to be the best in the country. We are going to serve children so kids can have a choice whether to be scientists or artists because they are going to have laboratories. They are going to have sports equipment, going to have dormitories, and they are going to have electricity and computers. That's our next goal in the five years to complete and launch. Wow. To think that, you know, back in 1996, you were going to buy that red car. You know, you were going to pursue other things. What do you feel, how your life changed? Do you feel like you were meant to do this? Or do you feel this calling to, you know, give back to your village like you have? I still haven't got my red car. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe sometime soon. <laughs> sometime soon I'll get my red car. I am the happiest man you can meet. I would describe myself as successful. I sleep better every night knowing the lives we are changing. I never take anything personal. When I go out and ask for money for these children, I don't even say you are making a donation. You are investing in somebody's life. Abby, you have nieces and nephews. I have four children. When I look in their eyes and then think of others who are going to bed without dad or mom saying good night, it humbles me. Mm -hmm. I'm humbled, blessed, and honored to serve. Wow. And just to give us kind of an idea, what is your village like? If I was going to visit, what would I experience? Good food, organic, <laughs> grow, locally grown. You will find lots of houses, are grass-touched houses, but because of the economic impact we have in this village for the last 12 years, the dynamics have changed. If you visited 12 years ago, you'd find no roads, you'll find no electricity, you'll find no running water, you'll find no libraries, you'll find no schools, you'll find paths rather than roads. It would be so much different, like what you always saw on these shows showing poor Africa. Mm -hmm. If you visit today, you'll find a fully completed library where you can borrow books and read, find an internet cafe, you find a guest house, you find a flushing toilet, you find roads that are paved, and schools and children smiling going to school. So we have changed completely how the village looks. In fact, one visitor from Virginia Tech University who was there last week said, Jackson, this is the Nyaka city now. It's no longer a village. So we have transformed that rural shift. People think a village, but now it is really a place that people leave the city to go work. Doctors, we have a clinic, we have clean water system, we have a farm, we have a library, we have two schools. It's, it's a different place. And that's why we are having an event on Friday mm -hmm. where we are going to do a fundraiser at Dublin Irish pub at 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. to raise more funds, to listen to African music, to dance to African dramas, to interact with people who are change makers, everyday heroes who stand for what is right and who are changing the world one child at a time, one village at a time.
That's excellent. And you can um, actually win tickets. Uh, Jackson was so gracious to offer the opportunity to win tickets to this event on Friday. If you call in 432-3893, we will take the fifth caller upon Jackson's request. And if you are the fifth caller, you can win these tickets and experience just more conversation like we're having right now. Some music, some fun, perhaps a couple beverages here and there. That's right. Um, but what are you doing in East Lansing now besides running this giant organization you've created? What does your day-to-day life entail? I wake up every day and go to the office on Hagadon and Lake Lansing. We have an office here. I have assembled a wonderful, hardworking team of women. I work with women especially. One guy, Aklish. Aklish, <laughs> forgive me. One guy, and we raise money, we communicate, we send out newsletters. But my daily life also, I have twin Twin girls who are six months who follow a 20 month old, and 20 month old follows 11 year old. They keep me busy. I'm sure. But I also sneak in a game once in a while. I belong to a league, over 40 league. We play soccer at Lisa every Thursday and Sunday in East Lansing. So I'm a soccer player and uh, a dad, a husband, a father of so many children in Uganda and in the United States. A friend, yeah, next door neighbor, rake leaves, cut my grass. <laughs> and certainly a game changer, it sounds like, too. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, again, to hear more from Jackson, you can um, buy one by one, or you, you can attend one by one, which is um, it's the third annual fundraising event for the project and the organization. And again, like he said, it will be at Dublin Square on Friday, this Friday, from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And for ticket information, you can visit the Nyaka AIDS Orphans Project website at www.nyakasc org. Uh, thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to this continued success and development with the project. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 
Logan Stark is not your typical college student. In 2010, he was part of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regime in Afghanistan. This Marine operation lost 25 men. Now, Logan Stark is a senior in the professional writing program, and he created a documentary for an advanced multimedia writing class with two classmates, Rebecca Zanscher and Lexi Dakin. It was titled For the 25 and detailed his and other Marines' experiences in Afghanistan. He's with us today. Hello, Logan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Now, talk to us about this documentary and where the idea came from and what it was like kind of going back to Afghanistan, almost in a sense. It started with a short that I did for journalism class here at Michigan State with Professor Carl Good, and he wanted a three to five minute video of a good story. He wanted you to use your iPhones, your point and shoot cameras, whatever technical things you had at your disposal to create this video. The only requirement was that it was a good story. And so when I was going through this project, I thought, what do I know that's a good story? And I immediately thought of my best friend, roommate, fellow Marine, Kevin Frame, who was shot in the head in Afghanistan and is still alive. And so I filmed the video in my basement, putting a camera on a stack of pizza boxes. Um, and what ended up was a six-minute short that eventually became to become the basis of what For the 25 was. And For the 25 is now 48 minutes long, so it's almost, what, eight times that? So Yeah, it definitely took on a life of its own after we started making it. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you were a Marine, and you were 20 years old when you joined the Marines. So what was that experience like, being 20 and going to a whole other country to experience a whole different lifestyle? It was the most broad learning experience you can ever imagine. I mean, foregoing your past life, starting new, throwing yourself into these different countries, these different cultures, and trying to learn how to protect and communicate with different people is definitely a learning experience that not a lot of people get to go through. Why did you decide to join the Marines? Um, I felt like it was something I needed to do. I had that that patriotic urge, the uh, the will to serve. And I did it all on my own. I I went to the recruiting office without telling anybody. I and I sat down uh, with my mom at lunch one day, and I was I told her I was going to boot camp in a couple months, and and that was that. What was her response? She was very supportive. Um, you think moms to be that? Oh, I don't want you to go, but she's like, you do what you feel like you need to do. And how would you describe boot camp? Uh, boot camp was the breaking down stage. Um, you need to learn how to function uh, as a follower uh, before you can become a good leader. And so it was a process of going through that stage. Did you feel like just in boot camp you changed and you began to see a whole alteration of your own self? Yeah, I think everybody comes out of boot camp a different person. You adopt new mannerisms, you speak a different way, you carry yourself a different way, and it's kind of hard not to come out uh, with those different effects. Mm -hmm. And uh, your regime in Afghanistan lost a lot of men, and very quickly, too. I think it was eight men in 10 days was one of the statistics on your video. How did you cope with that when you're in Afghanistan? Uh, when it happens so quick like that, you really don't have a choice but to look at it, figure out how to respond to where that doesn't happen again. And so from that point on, it was us accepting the fact that it could be this bad 
the whole deployment, the rest of the six months, and adapting to our situation and figuring out how to make it out of there alive, essentially. And were you scared? Yeah, I was scared. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anybody who wasn't scared. You know, you, you try not to show it on your face before you leave for a patrol every day, but of course. Mm-hmm. And how did you overcome that fear while you were there? The brotherhood that you have with uh, the men around you, knowing that they're just as scared or anything could happen to any of you. But when you go out, you have to rely on each other to take care of each other, to support each other. And that's where you gain your strength from. Mm-hmm. And you could sense the brotherhood in your documentary, you know, I mean, in many, many parts of it, because you um, you interviewed three people. Uh, can you talk about each of those people? Uh, well, it, it started with Kevin Frame, who became the idea behind the film. And he's my roommate. So I'm just like, <laughs> hey, let's drink some beers. Let's sit down <laughs> in front of a camera and talk a little bit. And. And then as it started to progress, I decided I needed to get a couple more guys. So I went to go to Chicago to interview Matt Smith, who's currently a student at DePaul University. And I see him pretty frequently now since we're so close. So I got to interview him, and then I went out to Idaho to interview Jordan Laird, who I had not seen in a very long time. He had been doing private contracting in Afghanistan, so it was the first time I had seen him in probably a year, and I got to spend uh, quite a few days with him. I got to see his family again, and he's got two little girls right now who are just little (laughs) bundles of joy and catch up with him, and it was just a great time. And through the video, you could really sense the emotion, you know, and a lot of the guys, I think they were surprised that they felt it during the interview as well. I mean, there were tears and you could really see it on their faces. What Were you trying to bring back the emotion to convey a different message with your video? When I go into the interview, I don't really expect anything to come out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to kind of explore those experiences and what comes of it is kind of a result of the whole process of sitting down and it becomes this therapeutic session. Like when uh, I'm interviewing Matt and he has this deeply emotional time, the question that I had asked him that got that response was a question that I thought was going to be a happy response. It was, Mm -hmm. what was it like for you coming home? And I expected it was it was everything to be back on on the, in the states, and he just it just hit him, and you could see it on his face. Mm-hmm. And we were talking before the show and this interview, and you were talking about when you came home. You came home in July, and then you began school in August at Michigan State University. What was that adjustment like? It was about as. <laughs> different as going from civilian life to boot camp mm-hmm. like it was just the opposite going from being around a group of guys who are gunfighters every day to college kids who are seven years younger than me it's it's a culture shock in a way that most people don't have to experience so it was it was a learning experience just like everything else was throughout this whole process and it took some time to adjust for sure do you feel like you're still adjusting to that? Because you're still seven years older. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. Um, and this video has helped with that process and allowed 
me to kind of open up and to um, tell people who I am and what my past is like. And it's overall, it's just been a, a really great experience. What have the other responses of the Marines that you were also stationed with been upon the video? Um, I have gotten nothing but an outpouring of support. People are, if I could show you the emails and the messages <laughs> and the phone calls I've got, like people are just like, you just keep doing what you're doing. And we love it. It's inspiring. It's healing. It's showing something that we knew happened that nobody else knew about. And so that is kind of making me take this next step into wanting to continue to do this stuff. Because mm -hmm. you had a, almost 20,000 views or over 20,000 views on YouTube, which is crazy and outstanding. But I watched the video last night and it, it really was. I mean, it evoked emotion. It was portrayed something that you think you understand from the media just but you really don't and i think the average person doesn't so it was incredible to see one person take that story and just go with it yeah i think what i really like about it is military people are kind of looked at as like this separate group sometimes and i think it really humanizes um the group of guys that i was with but in the process kind of humanizes military people in general you know we're just guys and a lot of times we're kids and it's not all bad you know there's funny parts in the film there's there's emotional parts there's suspenseful parts and we're just regular guys going like trying to make a living mm -hmm. and what was your favorite memory looking back because there were a lot of laughter in the video as well yeah that the memorial i think for Matthew Abate when when we all got together and got to see him again mm -hmm. or got to be together because of him um, in that moment you knew what you were fighting for because all that other stuff politics just goes out the window and you're there for the guy to your left and your right can you talk a little bit about Matthew Abate for those of who haven't seen the video yeah he's he's kind of the the what kind of became the focal point in the the middle part of the video and he was that man that every single marine that i knew looked up to he was physically the best mentally the best he won every award you could imagine at every school he went to and he was the leader of of our group of snipers and uh he was killed in action in december and because of uh, that was the first time that we got to see each other at, during the deployment because we were split up because we were supporting different companies. And so because of his memorial, we got to see each other again. And it was, uh, it was a great time and it was an awful time at the same time. One of the men in your, that you interviewed said, every Marine wanted to be him and every girl wanted to be with him. <laughs> I thought that was a good explanation. There's no better way to sum up that about that. Um, now, what is next for you and your future? Um, well, right now we are in the process of starting a website uh, where the video can live. And I, and I posted some comments on the, on the video on the YouTube page to... Um, ask for people if they want to submit a response or if they want to share their feelings about the video to email um, for the 25.com and share how this video impacted you and kind of create a discussion on the website. And then uh, the co-producers and myself are 
we're thinking about kind of starting a blog and kind of linking some of the other things that um, are out there regarding our battalion and some of the nonprofits that are going around with vets and helping and getting all that stuff. Do you see other Marines or any other military personnel trying to help people cope and understand in the same way that you have? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm still kind of looking at all that, but I don't. I think it's the first time that, like, really sitting down on video mm-hmm. has been used, and I never thought it would be this sort of therapeutic process when I started. But talking to my buddies since, it seems to really help. So mm-hmm. it's kind of inspired me to keep doing it. And you were also interviewed for some of the video. Did it help you being Absolutely. interviewed? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, when we went through the process of making this, the co-producers asked me if I would be willing to to be interviewed. And at first I was pretty hesitant to do it. It's kind of hard to put yourself out there on video knowing that it has a potential to be seen by a lot of people. And then it kind of hit me, like, how could I ask my brothers to do this if I wasn't willing to do it myself? And through that process of sitting down, I was able to kind of communicate some of the things that I was going through. And it was like, after it's done, it's like, okay, it's out there in the world now. Like, you just kind of feel like you got a monkey off your back. Mm -hmm. Now, do you feel like, um, you know, now that you communicated in this way one will it continue and two do you feel like before people you know maybe made it public it was difficult and almost men didn't want to for some reason to communicate how they felt or that they were scared or that they were hurting yeah i think of it like when you're sitting in class Mm -hmm. and you don't really understand something the teacher says and you want to raise your hand but you're scared that you'll be the only one that doesn't know or doesn't understand but eventually you do raise your hand and you ask that question and then there are other people in the classroom who had that same question and benefit from you raising your hand and I kind of feel that's what this process has been like where you know if I say I'm dealing with these things well there's probably other people out there who are too and what else can we do to help you know let's Mm -hmm. just a little liberating right Okay. Um, And then last question in the documentary, you asked the question, um, if you could have anyone, living or dead, past or present, fictional or non-fictional, jump out of a birthday cake on your next birthday, who would it be and why? (laughs) Could you answer that question? Um, That whole question actually came from the co-producers use that as an icebreaker question (laughs) when they interviewed me. And, you know, when you get on camera or when you're about to be interviewed, you're always nervous and you're tense, and it just helps to have one of those questions. So they asked me that question when I did my interview, and I just did that Kept to every <laughs> single person I interviewed. And But I said Teddy Roosevelt when they asked me. How come? I don't know. I've always just thought he was a good president, and I really just like him as a person and as a man. And then... As I went through and I asked everybody else that question, it was Jordan who said Matabate, and I was like, perfect. Mm-hmm. He, he leewayed into that segment of the video perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did a nice job with that as well. Uh, lastly, um, do you think that you'll ever go back to the military? Um, I don't know. I'm still, right now I am in active reserve mm-hmm. until 2015. So if I have to... I will. I'm under contract, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of uh, a question that, depending on what's going on in the world, 
kind of deters that. Sure. Well, Logan, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, before we go, we're going to play a part of his video. It's actually the ending, which kind of sums up the whole thesis in my mind. Throughout this film, I questioned whether I was doing the right thing. Asking my brothers to relive those moments, to delve back into that pain, has been a trying task. But now I understand. We owe it to the 25 who didn't come home, and every other warrior who has paid the ultimate sacrifice. We owe it to them to keep their memory alive, no matter how hard it is for us still walking this earth. We owe it to the fatherless children, to the wives who will never feel the touch of their husband again, to the girlfriends who keep that last letter in the top drawer of their bedroom dresser, to the brothers, sisters, and friends who would do anything to hear their laugh one more time. We owe it to the mothers who never stop praying, and to the fathers who buried their sons too early, and to the grandparents that watched them grow. We owe it to the ones who came home missing limbs and to the men who left their innocence on the battlefield. We owe it to the 25 to keep our brotherhood alive, to live our lives with their memory in our hearts, to help each other the way we did when death was a constant companion, and to make them proud because they will always be with us in spirit. And that concludes our show this evening. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to our engineer, Randy Adams. Producer Gabrielle Sadivia is currently studying. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm out of here. Th- thanks again, man. It was good. Wait, you were, uh, you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are you, are you good to drive? Heck yeah. I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man. You sure? I mean, I can call a cab or we can, uh, we can get somebody to take you home, yeah, you know? Yeah, don't worry. Okay, uh, hey, text me when you get back, okay? Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. Ever. A message from 88.9 The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., The Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane. In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs. An army of new songs are called to battle. And only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10. Sit or spit. Impact 89FM Now back to Impact Exposure 
Welcome back to Exposure. I am Abby Newton. Now this Sunday, an interesting dance group will be performing at Wharton Center. Bade Folklorico da Bahia is the only folk dance group in Brazil. It was founded by Walson Batolo in 1988 and is celebrating its 25th year with a performance at Wharton Center. We are actually giving away two tickets tonight if you call in at 517-432-3893. The dance tickets could be yours. Now the dance group demonstrates the cultural traditions and vibrancy of Brazil. Brazil. Ballet is prestigious around the globe. Um, we are actually going to take a moment to listen to what you can expect if you do attend the event. And that is just a sneak preview. Um, the visuals are also outstanding. Uh, so with that, you can again call in at 517-432-3893 to win tickets to see Ballet Folklorico de Bahia. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> Hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh. Sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Vice Admiral Lee Gunn served in the U.S. Navy for 35 years. During this time, he developed a passion for renewable energy and realized its importance. He now lives in Michigan and tours the state advocating for this renewable energy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Yeah, so Rick Snyder is preparing to release high-profile reports on renewable energy and energy efficiency. And you are certainly an advocate for renewable energy. But what ways do you foresee Michigan using renewable energy? Well, I'm excited about uh, the governor's draft report, and I'm looking forward to uh, learning about what the comments are beyond uh, those that have already been made to his commission that resulted in the report. Um, and one of the reasons I'm excited about it, on behalf of the Military Advisory Board at CNA, um, is that it encourages the kind of innovation and development of 
um, renewable energy that we believe will be so beneficial for the nation and for Michigan in particular. And so I think the energy choices that people make, the conversations that you all have with your <clears throat> members of the legislature, um, and the, the choices that are made in terms of policy that encourage the, the development and, re, and use of renewables and the research and development that goes along with that, which Michigan is so well known for and highly capable of, um, will improve the status of the state economically uh, and, of course, in terms of, of health and uh, independence from um, the international price-setting mechanism of oil. Uh, and uh, so the whole thing excites me, and I believe that it's a basis on which Michigan citizens can make a, a number of excellent and um, potentially realistic choices in renewable energy. And during your time in the military and being abroad, could you sense this feeling of almost dependence on the foreign oils? Well, um, the U.S. has had um, for 40 years or more uh, a dependence on foreign oil, and that carries with it um, increased obligations to ensure that the lines of supply uh, and the like, plus our diplomatic relationships with other nations, are affected by the um, by our need for continuing uninterrupted supply of oil. I'm, um, I'm encouraged by natural gas developments and um, developments in the production in the United States of oil um, based on horizontal drilling and, and hydraulic fracturing. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the problem, though, is people seem to believe that an abundance of oil in North America will uh, wean us from the worldwide market in oil. And in fact, we're always going to be entangled in the worldwide price-setting mechanism and determination of supply of oil. And so while it's entirely a good thing that we're going to buy less from overseas, um, we should not relax and uh, change our, our momentum in the direction of using renewables because we're always going to be victims, in a sense, of this pricing scheme over which Americans and certainly folks in Michigan have no control. And during your time in the Navy, you oversaw energy technology and national security. Now, do you think the military itself can take steps uh, toward using renewable energy? Uh, the military is, in fact, exerting uh, what I consider to be a very positive leadership role. Um, it's very much in the military's interest as an organization that uses a great deal of fossil fuel, oil in particular. Um, it's it's an advantage to the military to reduce the dependence on oil uh, in combat operations on the front lines, all the way from Afghanistan to the to the middle of the uh, Pacific Ocean. The um, so, in addition to encouraging research and development in that area, the military, as a major buyer of energy products in the United States and around the world, uh, is looking hard at working hard on uh, improving efficiency, uh, both of operations and of the, um, the work that's done by facilities and stationary 
uh, military infrastructure. And then um, we are also looking at, um, be, at being a major consumer of, of energy and oil in particular in the United States. We're looking at the advantages um, and ways of exploiting those advantages of reducing um, that dependence on oil and, most importantly, implementing uh, new renewables in every instance where it's possible to do that. And we have some examples in the military, Fort Bliss in Texas being one of them, where great strides have been made in actually transforming the way that the institution and the people who are part of our institution look at and use energy. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those examples? Well, there are very large um, solar and wind farms, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in Texas, on military installations. The objective there being, uh, insofar as possible, as quickly as possible, to make the bases relatively self-sufficient um, so that interruptions in the domestic power supply won't uh, prevent the bases from carrying out their missions, their military missions. Um, in addition to allowing that um, that kind of freedom from whatever the the problems may be with the local power infrastructure for the bases, um, it also allows the bases to be in a helpful role uh, when and if those interruptions occur in the civilian community. Mm-hmm. And it's then possible for the military uh, to be a provider rather than a consumer of electricity and help sustain the, the life support needs of those in the community around it. The military works real hard to be um, good members of the community, and so we uh, um, we view this as kind of a dual mission, um, both limit the dependence on a fragile infrastructure where that exists and also provide power um, where we can when there are difficulties with power elsewhere. So during your 35 years in the military, did you feel that we were making strides in renewable energy during the whole time, or did we just recently begin really pushing forward in that sense? I think this is pretty recent, and by that I mean since I was commissioned during the Vietnam War in 1965, pretty recent to me means the 90s and the first decade of the 21st century here. Um, so it is a, a relatively recent development, but it's driven by necessity, as, as I believe choices in Michigan uh, with regard to implementation of renewables um, will be uh, driven by, is driven by uh, necessity. The, um, the opportunities for young, talented folks, uh, you all who are students at Michigan State, um, to uh, be leaders and contributors in this new energy economy, uh, I think is extraordinary. And I'm excited to sit back over the next years and watch your accomplishments in that regard. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my last questions is just about your experience in the military. You oversaw the withdrawal of UN peacekeeping forces from Somalia. What was that experience like? uh, There were two experiences in Somalia. In the first uh, instance. These are both in the early 90s, of course, and uh, Somalia essentially came apart um, after the uh, dictator, Syed Bar, was removed uh, by a coup. And um, there was a humanitarian 
assistance disaster brewing there. And the U.S. military, the Army in particular, but then the Marine Corps as well, uh, was inserted to prevent a million people starving to death. And um, I have got to say that I think this was an extraordinary mission success. Um, million, a million lives were saved. Um, that's kind of lost in the fog when people talk about um, Black Hawk Down and the incidents mm-hmm. that surrounded the U.S. departure the first time. We turned the missions in Mogadishu and surrounding Somalia uh, over to the United Nations peacekeepers in uh, 92. And in 94, it became necessary for us to withdraw because there was combat continuing in and around Mogadishu. Uh, For us to participate in the withdrawal of the United Nations peacekeepers, the last 4,500. And so... We did that, and we did it without, um, as I believe, without loss of life on the part of the Somalis. Certainly, we did it without loss of life on the U.N. peacekeepers or the U.S. and Italian troops who, who helped us. Um, it was a great military success, and the only dissatisfying part of it was that we had to leave. Mm-hmm. And um, we had to leave people behind who are in extreme poverty. Um, and those kinds of conditions that we see uh, in northern Kenya and the refugee camps and, and unfortunately in many parts of Somalia are issues that you all, um, students, other Americans, call on your military to deal with. And so that's one of the reasons that the Military Advisory Board has so been so engaged uh, in issues of energy and energy choices and that we encourage so strongly the implementation, increasing use, technological development of renewables. So uh, thank you very much for having me on your show, and I'm looking forward to hearing about great success in the future from Michigan State students. Well, thank you very much, Vice Admiral Liga, and we appreciate your time. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Welcome back. I am Abby Newton, and it is October 22nd. That's right, only nine more days until children and college students alike get dressed up and start trick-or-treating throughout East Lansing. However, Halloween will actually start this weekend at Michigan State as the sororities and fraternities across campus will join to put on their annual event, Safe Halloween. I spoke with senior sorority member and vice president of Panhellenic Council, Anna Richards, about how Greeks celebrate the spooky holiday. So Safe Halloween, uh, like we said, tis the season. Can you tell us a little bit about this Safe Halloween event? Yeah, so we're going to be shutting down um, MAC from the Blacks of Bircham to Elizabeth um, on this Thursday, October 24th, from 530 to 7.30. Um, everyone's welcome to come on out. We'll have bounce houses, games, activities, face painting, pumpkin decorating, um, and lots and lots of candy um, for trick-or-treaters to come and hang out with, uh, with the Greek community. So it's kind of like kids get double time, right? Trick-or-treating before Halloween and then trick-or-treating on Halloween. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, we kind of recognize that we're in a college town. You know, there's college houses that live in East Lansing that don't necessarily participate on the night of Halloween with candy. So this is really a great opportunity for the young families and children in the East Lansing area to kind of get that safe and fun Halloween experience. Um, It's a little bit beforehand, before (laughs) Halloween, but that way they can kind of get um, double the fun, hopefully. 
And we talked earlier about the collaboration that this event has between the Greek community, between students, between, you know, East Lansing itself. Why is that important? And how did the Greeks, I guess, why did you feel that that was necessary to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the Greek community has had this event for, you know, many years now. But we really think it's important to collaborate with other student organizations because we are a united student body. You know, it's really important for us to work with, you know, ASMSU and the College of Graduate Students and, you know, all the other various student organizations because we, you know, that support back and forth is so helpful. We need them and they need us. And and it's just a really good way for us all to kind of unite as Michigan State students. So we're really excited to be pairing up with everyone. And and I think it makes for a more dynamic and, and a bigger, better experience for everyone. So, you know, I just think that that's, you know, the best thing you can do. And when working with East Lansing, we've had such a great relationship, and we're so thankful um, to have them working with us on a regular basis that we want to be able to give back to them. And I think all students feel that way. You know, we're a part of this community, too, and this is a great way for us to reach out and, and thank them for letting us live in their city for four years, you know. So. <laughs> and for four years, you've been doing Safe Halloween. So what's been your favorite part during your four-year adventure, I suppose? Oh, my gosh, I love it, all the planning and all the fun and games. But my favorite is just seeing the little kids, how excited they are to get the candy. They're all dressed up in their cute little costumes. I just, I love it. They're adorable. And it's, it's fun to provide such an exciting experience for the little ones. So mm-hmm. that's my, my favorite thing is to see, you know, these full, full-grown college guys interacting with little kids and playing games. I think it's just a great time. <laughs> and what's been your favorite costume you've seen over the four years? Oh, my gosh. Last year, it was, um, like, the old man from Up, the movie, the Disney movie. This little boy was dressed as the guy from Up, and so he had, you know, his cute little outfit on and a house and balloons tying him up, up tied to him. So it was just the cutest thing, and he was so happy and bubbly and adorable. So that was easily my favorite. But all the little animals and creatures running around, they're so cute. <laughs> and for students who aren't involved in uh, Greek life necessarily, are they still invited in, yeah, you know, to hang out? or? Absolutely. Good. Yeah, everyone's welcome. Like I said, it's 5.30 to 7.30. Um, come on. You can, everyone's welcome to come play games, have candy, you know, check it out. I think it's just a good experience for any college students to get to see the little kids having a good time. You know, it makes it a little bit more like home. So mm-hmm. everyone's absolutely welcome to come and join us. Well, Anna, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure it'll be a very, very fun event. <laughs> yes, thank you. We're looking forward to it. And thanks for your time. Mm-hmm. And that is all we have tonight, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in. As always, it has been a pleasure filling your ears with interesting East Lansing, Lansing, and Michigan State news and entertainment this Tuesday night. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our assistant producer, Will Meineke, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure, 88.9 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.